You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies gentlemen. Thanks to AOA. We appreciate being a part of your day, that is for sure. And we've got a lot to cover on today's show. We're going to jump right into it. In segment two, we're going to talk with Pedro Deneca about harvest progress down in Brazil and what that cash soybean market in that country can teach us up here in the United States. And in segment three, we're going to get an update on the USDA Ag Outlook Forum. Jackie Fatka, Associate Editor at AgriPulse, will be joining us. Before the end of the show, we're going to check in with our friends at the American Soybean Association. They're preparing for Commodity Classic and have a number of very cool things going to be in their booth. We'll be talking to Brandon Whip about what they've got prepared for the crowd coming to Orlando later on in March. Before we get into all of that, however, we are seeing discussions around biofuels continue to stay hot. They're hot in the nation's capital and they're hot out in the countryside. With that RFS set rule proposed back in December, the biofuel groups are working to make sure that EPA has the best data as they look towards publishing that final rule later this week. And with regard to the data, we've seen some fantastic research coming out of these biofuel associations. Growth Energy has been doing some great work. They've recently submitted to the EPA and joining us now from Growth is their CEO, Emily Score. Emily, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, good morning. Let's talk about these discussions about the RFS set rule. Emily, that was proposed back in December. We've got these conversations going before it gets turned into the final rule. And what are we hearing? What is the EPA looking for as they set this up for that final rule? Well, I mean, the EPA is asking for comments on a host of things. Um, and so we've provided formal comments earlier this month. I testified uh, at a hearing with EPA in early January. And the message from growth energy in the industry is, you know, the volumes that they've proposed for conventional biofuel, they're strong. They're building on the success of the program. So we wanna see a final rule proposed that reflects those strong numbers above 15 billion gallons. We wanna make sure they took a hard look for the advanced numbers. Um, and I think those could go up a little bit higher because you've gotta reflect what's actually going on in the marketplace. So have their decisions on the growth trajectory be based on what's taking place and what we can do uh, very clearly in the future. And then the, you know, the comments are always an opportunity for us to build upon the large body of research affirming uh, the importance of biofuels to a clean energy future. And so in our comments, we added uh, additional independent reports that really build on the data that show uh, more biofuels, it's good for the environment, it's good for climate, and it's actually good for human health effects as well. Absolutely. And one of the ongoing concerns when we we're talking about biofuels is that carbon intensity of the fuel. What's it going to do for the greenhouse gas emissions, that carbon component? And I understand earlier this month, Emily, as a part of those additional comments you sent in, uh, you had some new data on what the carbon intensity of corn-based ethanol looks like. Do you have that information handy by chance? I do. Yes. Yeah. So we had two reports that we submitted that were taking a hard look at you know, some of the factors that go into our carbon intensity for example, indirect land use change. Uh, and so one of our studies, Ramble, taught, uh, shows that 
looking at the best available science, the impact of corn ethanol production is two to, five, two to four times smaller than formerly thought. So what you're seeing is as, we're, as we've got real world data and we're looking at real world, what's happening in terms of the increase of the corn yield, the fact that the amount of land we're using has really remained steady since 2007, um, that data is replacing the predictive modeling that years ago overestimated what our impact on land would be. So that's a, a really important research. We've got another research from EH&E that really just talks about the additional effects in terms of reducing toxic emissions. And so you've got cleaner emissions, the more ethanol that you use. And so we're just continuing to build on the data set to show we're good for the environment. Uh, we don't have an impact on endangered species. Um, you know, kind of put that storyline to bed um, and, and make sure that we celebrate all of the environmental and climate benefits of using low carbon biofuels. That is so true. Emily, you mentioned no impact on endangered species. That's something that's come back up recently, thanks to some work from Dr. Tyler Lark at uh, Wisconsin. And I'm wondering what... Is this a combination or a function of the modeling being inaccurate as they're doing these large econometric studies that we continue to see some misinformation come out? Yes. And so, you know, with respect to Tyler Lark, I mean, we, we've been here before with him and he seems to have an ax to grind. Um, he's constantly straining to look for potential negative impacts. And he did come out with a recent study um, where he's uh, claiming that, well, we have more research to, to be done to see if there's any effect of the RFS and corn production on the endangered species and their critical habitat. Well, the good news is we've already done that research. We submitted it to EPA in our comments and uh, Ramble Group finds that the best available science shows the RFS either has no effect or is not likely to adversely affect any listed species or critical habitat. So we've got the good science out there. Um, and we've just got to make sure that we get it into the hands of, of the regulators. That's what it all comes down to. It's got to be with the folks who can put the action to it. To that end, we are seeing some states here across the Midwest in particular look for ways to give their consumers options for biofuels all summer. I'm speaking about E15. Emily, can you give us an update? Where, how are those states progressing towards that uh, waiver on E15? Well, yes. So uh, eight states uh, governors submitted, uh, they petitioned EPA to treat E15 the same way it treats E10 under the Clean Air Act. And what these governors are saying is we've got a fuel that's more affordable and it's better for the environment and we want our consumers to access it this summer. So those petitions have been sent to EPA. EPA has, uh, has already uh, surpassed the deadline. We do expect shortly, though, that the agency is likely to come out um, essentially confirming um, what, what the governors have requested. And that's what has to happen. So the governors have to submit a request to EPA. EPA has to come out with a proposal to support their request. So I, I do think we'll hopefully see some movement uh, in the short term on that. All right. Well, Emily, while we're talking here this summer, it sounds like things are going to be heating up across the Midwest when it comes to discussions about carbon capture and sequestration. We're seeing those pipelines start to move forward. And from the ethanol perspective, from Growth Energy's perspective, where do you think these programs need to go? What are you looking to see as these move forward? Well, we certainly would like to see this technology come to fruition. So you keep in mind, we as a biofuels industry, we've got to be able to compete in a low carbon economy. And one of the most efficient and effective ways for us to continue to reduce our carbon intensity is by being able to capture that really clean carbon that is emitted through the fermentation process um, and sequester it. And so that's what the pipeline te technology is all about. Uh, so, you know, it's an important tool for biofuel to continue to be 
um, as good as we possibly can for the environment. And ultimately that means it's something that's gonna be beneficial for, for farmers and for rural America. So, you know, we support and, and, and you know, part of what we need to do is educate on um, why this is an important technology and a safe technology that I think can be implemented, uh, hopefully to everyone's satisfaction. For folks that are looking for more information on this type of technology as it comes to fruition, Emily, are there any good resources you could recommend? Well, that's a good question. So, you know, I'll direct you to growthenergy.org and, and make sure that we've got additional links um, because I think there, so we, we do have some, some, some Q's and A's and some facts that I think are important for people. So go to growthenergy.org and we'll answer, I think, some of your initial questions on carbon capture and sequestration. Absolutely. And stay tuned, folks. This discussion is just getting started. We're going to see it change here throughout the year and we'll see how it shakes out. We've been getting an update on the biofuels industry from Emily Score, the CEO of Growth Energy. And Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Folks, stay with us when AOA returns. We're going to take our focus down to Brazil with Pedro Deneca of MD Commodities. Stay here for more AOA right after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Pride. It runs deep for those in agriculture. But that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance. There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. Biopath and Powercoat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Powercoat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at cornsprint.com. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. 
Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You know, the nature of this show is to keep American farmers and ranchers informed to what is developing in the ag industry around the world because global ag certainly matters to those of us here in the United States. In this time of year, the segment of agriculture that the market is focused on is in South America, Brazil, Argentina. What's happening with those crops? What's happening with those markets? Joining us now for an update and insight into that whole region is Pedro Deneca. He is a founder and partner at MD Commodity. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start first with harvest progress down in Brazil. Pedro, of course, you've got a lot of conversations, a lot of contacts down in that country. Fill us in. What's harvest progress look like across the whole of Brazil so far? So, Mike, we're uh, slightly behind uh, the last three years pace. And, and um, just keep in mind, the, the, the reason we use three-year average and not the five-year average or 10-year average is simply due to the sheer size of of, of the uh, growth, right, in, in in Brazil. So the pace of growth in Brazil. So obviously, uh, Brazil now harvest harvesting uh, what they are about to harvest a, a crop of 150 million metric tons. It's a lot different than trying to harvest 100 million metric tons, which is what they produced, you know, five six years ago. So uh-huh. you know, you you have you have an increase of 50 percent in, in production. So obviously, your harvest pace is going to uh, slow down uh, a little bit, but um, you know farmers are very well equipped and they are hitting the fields pretty hard. And so we're right about thirty percent harvested at this point. Thirty percent harvested. And Pedro, I've been hearing from some market analysts who believe that Brazilian farmers are not as aggressively sold as they have been this time of year at their harvest pace. What What are you thinking on Brazilian farmer sales? So that's correct. Uh, the sales are a little bit behind the uh, last, you know, last few years average um, for this time of year. However, we must keep in mind that market conditions change year to year, and so does farmer behavior. And for the last three years, uh, we've had uh, we we have had a market that has been considerably different than it was, for instance, between 2015 until middle of 2020. Right from 2015 until middle of 2020. Uh, farmers were thrilled if we saw $10 soybeans, right? We, we had uh, a lot of things happening. Demand wasn't that great. And we had the trade war between the U.S. and China and so many other things that kept prices uh, suppressed for a long time. And then when prices um, came back towards the uh, teens in the be- uh, for soybeans, farmers are sort of asleep at the wheel is what I believe at this point. You know, and I say that. For the Brazilian farmer, I say that for the U.S. farmer as well. I think a lot of farmers are here believing that we are in a in this new paradigm that 
oh, hey, we're not going to see uh, soybeans below $13 again. We're not going to see them below $12 again. And I believe that's a mistake, right? So that has obviously affected farmer behavior because for the last two and a half years, three years almost, every time the market has gone towards that $12 mark, $13 mark, for some reason, for one reason or another, this uh, this past two months here, we've had the Argentina drought and, and the whole weather situation down there. The market has come back towards the $15, $16 mark, right? 14 and a half above. So that has absolutely impacted farmer behavior down there. But uh, keep in mind that the Brazilian farmer knows what they are harvesting at this point, And sales will catch up very, very fast in the next two to three months for a couple of different reasons. Number one, again, they understand what they're harvesting. They are seeing the yields that are printing, you know, in their monitors. They understand uh, the sheer size of this crop, which uh, is going to be a record by far in Brazil. And uh, premiums are already negative, right? Export bases are negative, meaning demand is there, but not there to the point that it will chase for the, the farmer at this point. Meaning if the farmer keeps holding, that's fine because the buyer is telling them, listen, we're not going to pay uh, the board prices for you because we know that the size of the crop that's arriving. Right. So that has changed some of the behavior. And in days where the uh, board goes up, you know, whether it's five cents, 10 cents, the farmer is rewarding the board and uh, sales uh, have accelerated here in the last couple of weeks. And also uh, they have some bills due here in uh, uh, May, uh, you know, end of May until uh, right around there, beginning of June. And also they have to make room for the uh, corn uh, safrinha crop that um, if weather contributes, it's also going to be a record coming in uh, from mid-June forward. So we believe sales are going to accelerate in the next few weeks and months. You, you mentioned that export basis in Brazil has has absolutely fallen apart. It was $70 a ton uh, here back at the start of the year. Now it's negative 10. Are, is this... Is this out of expectations for you or, or is this a seasonal trend in that export basis collapsing here as those beans come to market? No, you know, Mike, it's the market just doing its job. <laughs> really, at the end of the day, it's it's a lot of beans coming in. And again, demand is solid, but not to the point that it can um, overcome uh, the sheer size of the Brazilian crop, no matter how much people want to talk about Argentina. And again, uh, all the love to my Argentinian friends that they're going through another very rough year there, and it's very unfortunate. Um, but we have to uh, do a cold analysis, if you will, an objective analysis. And when we do that, um, listen, you can't compare, oh, man, Argentina is going to be 30 millimetric tons. They're going to be 35 millimetric tons, you know, so that's say 10 millimetric tons or 15 millimetric tons below last year, while well, Brazil is putting in the market 25 millimetric tons above last year. So it, it, again, it's it's you cannot ignore, and the market has been uh, somewhat ignoring, the board at least has been somewhat ignoring uh, the story out of Brazil, but uh, basis hasn't, you know? And, and honestly, between cash and futures, Mike, you know, usually who's telling the truth, right? <laughs> That's right. Cash is king, generally speaking. With that being said, Pedro, if that that drop in basis in Brazil is happening, when the futures market catches up to it, what are you watching for some levels of support in this old crop bean market? You know, old crop is a completely different story, right, than the new crop, especially this year. We could see a severe drop in prices uh, for new crop. Uh, but for that, we're going to need to get through the U.S. growing season. So there's a lot of a lot of things to happen between now and then. But old crop, you know, I still think the market's going to be somewhat supported around the $13, $50, $14 mark. 
Um, but again, I mean, that's a dollar, dollar fifty of downside that we could potentially have in the next few months. And again, I've been saying this for months on Twitter uh, at PhD Chicago. You guys that follow me, you guys understand this. Um, you know, a lot of people have been doubting what I've been saying. I said uh, starting in, in uh, mid to late January, U.S. export sales were going to suffer uh, and they were going to be. Uh, you know, a lot lower than they were at the same time last year. And that's exactly what's happening. So today we had sales again, uh, quite below uh, where they were last year. And uh, Brazil is going to be very aggressive exporting between now and until October. So the old crop story, again, it's firm enough to where I don't think old crop prices can simply melt down uh, towards, say, below $13 or something like that. But we absolutely have a dollar, dollar fifty of downside here in the next month or so. I think it could happen until we get into the U.S. growing season, and then we have to deal with that speculation regarding weather, planting season, and etc. Absolutely, Pedro. While we're thinking old crop, that old crop corn market could see some impact as that Brazilian safrinha comes on the market here later on this spring, early summer. Should U.S. growers be looking to get more of that old crop risk unloaded here before that happens? Look, my opinion is yes. I think uh, I think both markets are quite overpriced here, soybeans and corn. But again, we have a whole U.S. growing season ahead, and with that, there's speculation, you know, regarding weather. Weather's never good enough, right, for planting. It's either too wet or too dry or too cold or too hot. So the market likes to speculate, especially in that April uh, time frame. But um, I would caution, you know, farmers from being uh, uh, perma bullish. Uh, I guess I would use that word. Um, because listen, U.S. corn uh, sales are awful. Uh, export sales are absolutely awful. Um, you know, we're 19 million metric tons behind last year's pace. There's still downside adjustments to come uh, from the USDA on the export side. Um, by the way, that export uh, estimate that the USDA is using for uh, on on the uh, outlook numbers, uh, we're not going to get anywhere close to that as long as Brazil produces a decent crop uh, in Safrinha. And for now. We're going to have to watch that weather, right? So weather between now and mid-April uh, is going to be key for the uh, Brazilian safrinha corn. That makes sense. Pedro, uh, from a Brazilian farmer's perspective, do they sell ahead much of that safrinha crop or do they wait to get it in the combine before marketing it? No, sir, they do. They they And they are actually now becoming more and more aggressive, understanding the potential that they have. So um, the further out that they get into their planting and they, they have a little more confidence in, in, you know, number one, they have outstanding soil moisture right now. Uh, planting is a little bit delayed, um, you know, a little bit outside of the ideal window, but nothing at this point to worry to worry about. So as long as we reach, um, you know, 70, 60, 70 percent planted by um March 10th, March 15th, we're going to be in good shape. So they're, they're, they're right now getting more and more confident and putting more sales on the books as the weather progresses. All right. Watch for that sales pressure to come out of Brazil, folks. We've been talking to Pedro Deneca. You can find him on Twitter at PhD Chicago. He's a founder and partner at MD Commodities. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Mike. And folks, stick around. We'll talk with Jackie Fatka of AgriPulse here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. As a farmer, I want a cooperative that's there for me. Not the other way around. A local co-op that works for me and works with CHS. To connect me with local experts I know and trust. And put a global network of markets and supply at my fingertips. A co-op that's here to help us. 
own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we look at the grain and livestock trade, we see a lot of heavy pressure in the wheat market, led down by Chicago and KC wheat here early on Friday with cord and beans mixed. Beans right around unchanged, slightly lower with the cord market, four to eight lower. We saw lower cord export sales in the latest week. USDA's weekly export sales numbers out and cord net sales were down 20% from the previous week. Wheat net sales were up 62% for the previous week at 39% for the prior four-week average. So one has to wonder if that's maybe having a little bit of an effect here on the wheat trade. Soybean net sales uh, were up 20% from the previous week, but down 18% for the prior four-week average. China was the top buyer of soybeans once again. Japan, the top buyer of corn, the Philippines, and Mexico, the top buyers of wheat. Now, a lot of the uh, headlines uh, focus going to be back on inflation today. The release of the Federal Reserve's preferred data that measures the rise in prices. Those inflation numbers, again, came in hotter than expected and notably higher than the previous month. And that raises fears of a more hawkish Federal Reserve, what it means again next month. Crude oil prices uh, were modestly higher overnight, but now we are a little lower. In the stock market, the Dow Jones down around 400 points amid that hotter inflation data. The Buenos Aires Great Exchange pegging Argentina's soybean crop at 33.5 million metric tons with corn at 41. Both numbers likely have more downside risk, but the market really just kind of yawned when those numbers were released, suggesting that they've already been priced in. Really, again, it's recession fears that are going to create the headwinds here throughout the day today for commodities. Cattle and hogs, they're trading their way higher. We saw a really strong pork export sales number for the week last week. And overall, we see mostly green on the screen in light livestock trade. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. A good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world.
Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues here today, and we're taking a look at what's developing in Washington, D.C. Yesterday, we spoke with Arlen Suderman of Stonex about the USDA Ag Outlook Forum's Crop Outlook. It's a big component of what they release in their annual USDA Ag Outlook, but there's so much more happening over the two days of this event. Jackie Fatka, Associate Editor at AgriPulse, has been covering the event. She joins us now with an update on the other things happening there at the USDA program in D.C. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us today. Always great to be with you, Mike. So, you know, when we think the Ag Outlook Forum, as Arlen mentioned yesterday, we think those crop outlooks. What's the USDA's best guess on here? what's going to happen in the ag economy? But there's so much else going on. Jackie, I pulled up the website. There are a ton of panels. Have you had a chance to sit in on any good ones? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the best parts of this forum is there's just so many different conversations, some great panels, a lot of insightful discussions. And so, yes, every every year the outlook starts off with with the USDA chief economist numbers. But then then you start to dig into those numbers. You start to to hear some more about the issues that are impacting those numbers. And so yesterday, Secretary Vilsack also gave a keynote, um, but then he also held a, a a panel uh, discussion on workforce challenges and and uh, spoke uh, with a tomato grower who's who's also doing something that's that's creating a more fair environment for their laborers. And, um, you know, a researcher was on that panel, too. So just good insight. Another great panel that I listened in on yesterday, too, was with Undersecretary Jenny Lester Moffitt, uh, who's their um, Undersecretary of Regulatory Affairs. And, and she talked with some different folks about how USDA is expanding uh, more markets, right? And, you know, we've had a lot of money that's gone out for the meat and processing grants. And so um, a producer from Montana who who started a co-op and, and was one of the recipients of those grants was on that panel, as well as uh, a main commissioner of agriculture, uh, Beal. And uh, just to share some of the, the ways that some of that money is going out and, and helping create more markets for for producers at all all levels. So, um, and then I had another great discussion that I was able to listen in on on food prices and where food prices are going. And so, a lot of great conversation yesterday, and a lot of opportunities to to share some of the important things that are going on in the ag industry. Jackie, food prices, the consumers' impact here of inflation is a huge concern for folks, particularly in the more value-added segments of agriculture closer to the retailer. What was the consensus from that panel yesterday? Are prices starting to moderate? We've seen some big changes, right? But, you know, bacon has gone up 81% since 1992. So that's that's a big jump, right? But, you know, right now we're all thinking eggs. Eggs are up, you know, tons. Technically, eggs are only up 2%, right? So when you look over a longer period of time, you know, we're seeing things that are different. But then again, like cheddar cheese is actually down 29%. So, you know, that was really interesting. I, I, one of my other favorite uh, kind of tidbits that I pulled out of that, you know, we all think inflation is really... Um, impacting food prices, right? You know, when we go to the grocery store, we we realize that we spent more today than we spent last week, or we're getting less for the same amount, right? And so everybody is, in their minds have a, kind of a perception about the impact of inflation on food. And and one of the the data points that's shared by the Food Marketing Institute by FMI um, was was the fact that there's this perceived level of inflation at 
a little over 24%, but the actual level of inflation is only 12% when you actually look at what prices are doing. So almost double, consumers are, are really kind of perceiving twice, it, it being twice as much as it really is. And, you know, I think along that same thing, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking that the grocery stores have these huge profits, right? And 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 their survey that they found, you know, they were actually, they, they, they asked, you know, what is the perceived level of grocery store profits? And and the, the survey found that the consumers thought it was 35%. Well, actually, grocery store profits are really, really narrow, and they're less than 3%. And they were at 3% in 2020. But you know, now they're at like two and a half percent, you know, a little under 3%. So again, that perception of where the money's going when you do have these high costs at the at the grocery store is is i think really insightful as well absolutely because people vote and they make regulations based on what they perceive the problem to be maybe not necessarily what the problem is so it could certainly impact how their decision making process goes as we get into this farm bill discussion jackie the other thing that i know is on the minds of a lot of agricultural producers it's a big geopolitical event so you have to talk about it in dc and that's trade eu ag commissioner will be at the outlook forum i understand is that happening on friday uh, yeah, today, this morning, he was uh, speaking earlier today. Um, he's actually visiting a Maryland farm with Secretary Vilsack today as well. And so this is a, another opportunity. You know, there's always a lot of talk about trade, right? Every every time that you, you have a discussion about farm profitability, trade comes into that. And, uh, you know, an interesting discussion because of some of the things that the EU is doing with their farmers or forcing upon their farmers. Um, and so so also just a really, um, you know, but also a great opportunity. You know, Secretary Vilsack is very pro-trade and, and encouraging the discussion of making sure that things are science-based. Um, a lot of the actions that the EU is taking and forcing upon their farmers is is actually not always science-based and could actually lower production while increasing cost for consumers. So a lot of concerns about some of their draconian measures to really impose more organic or fewer chemicals and less fertilizer use to, quote, meet a sustainability measure, which a lot of the U.S. producers are doing voluntarily and in saving money and reducing inputs at the same time. Right. And growing production. I think it's absolutely worth mentioning. We're being more sustainable while we're providing more food. Jackie, to that end, climate change, sustainability, all of these very hot button topics, big buzzwords in D.C., I imagine those have been coming up at the Outlook Forum. Yeah, you know, a lot of uh, focus on some of these climate smart partnerships. You know, Secretary Vilsack held a, a press conference yesterday. And one of the questions I asked personally was, you know, when are we going to get some of these final numbers out on these contracts? Right. Uh, you and I spoke way, way back in the fall when he was at the Farm Progress Show and he started to make some of those first initial announcements of who was going to receive this three billion dollars worth of funds to help all these pilot projects to learn more about, you know, on the ground impact of, of climate smart practices. And we're still waiting to hear the the final amounts. And part of that is, you know, after a, a organization like the Iowa Soybean Association uh, was, was awarded a, a project, you know, they kind of had to go back to their drawing board and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to be able to match these funds and this is what USDA is thinking they're going to do. So Secretary Vilsack said we could still have another couple of months before we know 
those final uh, contracts, essentially, that USDA is going to to go into with these different organizations and companies, right? Because this is an, a unique partnership. USDA is providing some funds, but you know all of these different applicants who came in provided funds, and then companies came in too. So it, it's, it's a very unique partnership that that this is going to 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 utilize, right? So we've never had something like this before. Um, but, you know, everybody's really anxious to see it. And, and it's curious, you know, a lot of farmers and a lot of farmers who might be listening still probably don't know a lot about these partnerships. But part of that's because I don't think these these groups have been able to go out and start recruiting the, the people that are going to be part of their projects because they're still waiting for those final applications, final, final determination of, of how much money is going to be spent where. That is a great point, Jackie. So far, it seems like all we've seen is the announcement of the award of the money. Very little actual work, but I'm sure that's getting underway. On those Climate Smart Partnerships, that funding bucket was separate from the Farm Bill, wasn't it? We won't be up. We won't be discussing those pilot project partnerships in the Farm Bill discussion, will we, in D.C.? You know, I, you know, I've been out here this week. Another thing here in D.C. too, there's the Food and Agricultural Climate Alliance, which uh, they've actually proposed some farm bill principles this week, 109 principles that they have. And really, they were kind of the brainchild behind what USDA essentially launched through those Climate Smart Partnerships. Um, this was a unique organization, alliance of over 80 different commodity groups, environmental group, conservation groups, who basically basically came to a table and said, okay, what can we agree upon? And they're their, their main tenants are, you know, voluntary, science-based, and market-driven. And so, you know, their 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 original proposals were were put into motion in 2020. Vilsack jumped on that really within the CCC funds. So not through farm bill funds. He used some of his authorization through the Commodity Credit Corporation to fund those projects. But, you know, I think that's really, you know, I don't think we'll be able to see much more of that in the Farm Bill of the sense of we're going to get the data from that because, again, we have we still haven't rolled those out. That being said, I think there's a lot of foundation and, and the alliance this week is, is surely continuing to call on Congress to fund more things because we saw a huge a uh, huge interest in this projects when when the the money was first announced you know that's, i think they had 18 billion dollars of of request and they only had 3 billion to give out right so a huge amount so there could be opportunities that, but again we don't have a lot of money extra money sitting around so you know how that gets funded into the farm bill but i think there's definitely an opportunity to continue to build on some of the climate smart partnerships and, and just a, a focus on on how you can streamline the regulatory process. There's a lot of the recommendations that the Alliance had out this week that doesn't require money and, and doesn't even require uh, you know legislative action. Some of it is, is things that USDA could do or could be written into a farm bill to encourage USDA to do, to help streamline things, improve things, provide more technical assistance to implement these practices. So a lot of a lot of focus continuing on that climate smart focus. That is something we're going to continue to hear more about, especially as these farm bill discussions start to heat up. Folks, we have been talking with Jackie Fatka. She is an associate editor over at AgriPulse. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. We always appreciate your insight on these issues that percolate over in the nation's capital. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Mike. And folks, stay with us. We'll have more AOA when we return.
Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Paul Stevenson, Senior Risk Management Consultant with Nationwide, about how to keep you and your family safe around stored grain. Paul, what are the primary risks to safety around on-farm grain storage? Probably the biggest thing that kind of jumps out at me is the entrapment issue around grain structures. Farmers today, I, I, I get it. We go quickly, right? There's a lot of things that are happening and so, therefore, we need to get things done very, very quickly. And a lot of times we go into grain structures by ourselves that if the grain is not in good condition could cause an entrapment. And that's really what Grain Bend Safety Week, the advocacy program that I work with, really centers around those entrapments. But you can't forget about the electrical safety issues, the possibility of having something else happen around the farm, like getting wrapped up into a, a PTO shaft many of those things. And I'm not just talking about just the parents, the owners of the farm. I'm also thinking a lot about children because children do play a part in every family farm, as well as, you know, the people that we hire to come in and help us on a daily basis, make the farm operation be successful. Paul, with that being the case, the fact that there are families on these farm operations, what can they do to stay safe around stored grain? I think number one is really know your grain condition that you have in the grain storage structure. If we don't keep our grain in condition, then that means is that it's going to start to degrade and we're going to have problems. And typically that problem with that grain is the reason why we have to go in to a grain structure. We've been talking with Paul Stevenson, Senior Risk Management Consultant for Nationwide about Grain Bin Safety Week. Paul, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you so much. And thanks again to CHS for being such a great partner to Nationwide and Grain Bend Safety Week. We really, really appreciate that. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, the education season, this winter time period for agriculture, when everybody has their meetings to get together, is starting to wind down. As we get into the month of March, we've got our final big time to get together as an industry, and it's happening this year in Orlando, Florida, folks. I'm talking, of course, about Commodity Classic. That's March 9th through the 11th. AOA will be there Thursday and Friday. We'll be broadcasting from the Trelleborg booth. We certainly hope to see all of you. But there will be a ton of great information down there in Orlando, not least of which will be on display at the American Soybean Association's booth. Joining me now for an update is Brandon Whip. He's an ASA board member and was part of the team that helped put together these panel uh, discussions at the Commodity Classic event. He joins us today. Brandon, thanks for joining us here on AOA. Thanks uh, for the opportunity, Mike. You know, before we start talking about Orlando, Brandon, I know you are a South Dakota farmer. How much snow did you get here over the past couple of days? Uh, we were right in the bullseye of the blizzard uh, for the first time this year. And, and yeah, we got 16 inches of snow and some some nice South Dakota wind to go along with it. So the last couple of days have been huh, have been pretty interesting dealing with that. But people are digging out and we're uh, we're getting on with the work here. That's what it's all about. Get that work done. Give a reason to maybe look forward to getting out of town, getting down to Orlando. Brandon, let's talk about what's going to be on display at the ASA's booth. I know you helped put together a couple of these panels. Can you talk about some of those that you're most excited about? Yeah, Mike. So the thing that really sets Commodity Classic apart from a lot of the other trade shows and events that happen in agriculture is the fantastic educational opportunities. Farmers can come there and hear from government uh, officials they can hear from top industry experts directly from them about where agriculture is headed and it's just a great investment for people's time and money uh to spend their to spend the week after next with us in orlando so we've actually got a couple of great things happening at the american soybean association booth this year uh the first one will be happening early thursday afternoon at 12 45 
we are going to have Alyssa Whitcraft from NASA there speaking to us. Now, NASA has been a great partner for Commodity Classic over the last few years. They display, they have a booth of their own, and they'll be coming to our booth to uh, give a presentation to answer any questions farmers might have about the, the services that, that NASA can provide to help them be better on their farm and, uh, and really any concerns they might have about uh, about nasa's involvement in agriculture it's going to be a fantastic learning opportunity there it certainly uh, is folks if you've not had the chance to hear from nasa either at commodity or some of these other events it's worth it the amount of work and the research they do is fascinating and the way space can play into ag who'd have guessed you know brandon but it's very very cool to see oh absolutely uh it's been very valuable for me on my on my farm and the management decisions i make and i would i would certainly recommend it to other people uh, another speaker we have at 11 a.m. on Friday, March 10th, Todd Jansen from the Ag Data Transparent Project will be there. Now, that's an organization that ASA has been involved with for a few years here. It is essentially a third-party watchdog that is uh, basically letting farmers know, well, letting the public know what various companies are doing with their data. Um, and they, they, they are sort of there as a third party to double check that every time a company makes a claim that they're being responsible with your data, that they're actually following through on that. And that's been an issue that for the last 10 years I've been involved in policy. It's very important to farmers. They want ownership of that data and they want to know uh, where it's going. And so that'll be a good discussion for them. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. That Todd Jansen that you said was on Friday at 11 a.m. in the booth? Yes, that's right. And then after that, or at least around that time, I understand you're also going to be taking a look at the futures markets with Al Kleist. Can you talk a little bit about what will be under discussion there, Brandon? That's right. Al and Corey uh, from Kleist Commodities, very generous to, uh, to come and speak to us at our booth. And rather than give a presentation, as, as most of the markets guys do, they'll, they'll give a presentation on that year's market situation. And it's very specific to right now. And nobody ever does that zoom out and talk about it from a 10,000 foot perspective you know how do the markets work who are these who are the players that we hear about you know that when when you hear a market analyst talk on the radio um, I got to admit as a farmer I don't always understand everything they're saying and so being able to sit in sort of a college classroom style setting and learn uh, from those guys and their team really helped me on my farm and so I was really happy to be able to bring them into the ASA booth and I'm going to really recommend that my fellow farmers uh, come and come and learn some of the things that they're going to talk about there. It's uh, it's been very, very useful for me uh, in running my business. Yeah. Getting the the definitions, the the words down, the fact that traders and brokers speak a very specific language because they live it day to day. How can we bring that to our operations and how can we leverage that kind of knowledge to make us more successful as soybean growers? Brandon, I've got to imagine that will be very interesting for a lot of folks who can uh, make the time to stop by. Can you tell us when that event will be happening? Oh, yeah, that will be happening at 3.30 on Friday, uh, March 10th at our ASA booth. It'll be about a 45 minute to an hour discussion there. And yeah, I, th I think that is an area that me and all my fellow farmers could stand to learn quite a bit about. And so we're really looking forward to that one. Absolutely. It's always been said, we don't make money growing the crop. We make our living selling the crop. So let's figure out how That's we can true. make those sales a little bit better. And then Brandon, of course, ASA members will be running around. They'll be able to answer questions. I imagine it's a good time to get together and touch base with growers at an event like Commodity Classic. It is absolutely. We want to hear, you know, from the boots on the ground. What are, what are 
what are people starting to see as policy concerns? Uh, the, the Commodity Classic is a great event for me as a South Dakota farmer to hear from a, a grower from Kentucky uh, or something, you know, for the, the issues that they deal with are completely different than the issues I deal with. And we can, we can not only compare notes, but we can set uh, policy priorities for our individual organizations for the next year. And, uh, and, and it's just, a, it's just a great time to get together. We're very happy to be emerging from COVID and having in-person events again. So it's just all very exciting. It is indeed, folks. Do be sure to get to that ASA booth. That's number 1902 at Commodity Classic in Orlando this year. We've been talking with Brandon Whip, the American Soybean Association Board. Brandon, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Folks, we look forward to seeing you hopefully in Commodity Classic. See us at the Trello Board booth both days and tune in next time. We'll talk weather with John Baranek here on AOA. Have a great one, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. What a great organization, helping families in need like ours. It's a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness, or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying, and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit farmrescue.org today. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Corn is in the blocks and ready to run. Biopath and Power Coat plants with a strong start to take the lead. Fueled by Mosaic Biological Fertilizer Complements for maximum performance and better nutrient uptake. We're seeing a strong return on fertilizer investment in this sprint. Biopath and Power Coat corn just continue to grow ahead. Improve your corn's nutrient use with Mosaic Biologicals. For corn that stays on track in the sprint, start training at cornsprint.com. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more.